You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Indeed, Lord God, we ask that you would send forth your Holy Spirit now and that you would break through the darkness of our own personal nights and show to us your truth unclouded. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Well, we find today in our lesson from 1 Corinthians that Paul is going to go out with a bang. He's ending his letter on a high note, looking at the resurrection and correcting some of the Corinthians' false beliefs, specifically about the resurrection of Christian believers. So Paul here, before getting into that problem, which he'll do next week in verse 12 of the Corinthians, that they didn't believe that they themselves would be raised from the dead, Paul today, in verses 1 through 11, is going to start with the foundational belief of Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. We can't believe that we, as believers, will be raised unless we first affirm the truth that Jesus Christ himself was raised. So Paul here asserts the reality and the reliability of Christ's resurrection through three undeniable things that he points out, not necessarily in a very linear way, but there are three things that he brings up in this passage that prove the resurrection. So the first of these is the apostolic tradition of those eyewitnesses who had encountered the risen Lord Jesus. The second thing is the support found throughout the Old Testament scriptures in the form of promises and foreshadowing that foretold what God would do through Jesus' atoning death and resurrection on the third day. And then finally, the third thing that Paul points to seems like a kind of a side, and yet it really hits at home, especially for me, and that is that Paul points to the fact that there was a miraculous change in his own life, and in other believers' lives there are miraculous changes as a result of what God has done in raising Jesus from the dead. And so he points to that very experiential reality as the third proof for the reliability of Christ's resurrection. Well, so number one, looking first at the apostolic tradition, did you happen to notice as uh, Victor Hansen read the lesson that the verses three and four read like one of our creeds? We just got to say and affirm our faith um, through the words of the Nicene Creed, and we often on morning prayer Sundays, we um, say together the Apostles' Creed, and these creeds contain phrases that are found here also, phrases that were used among early Christians to profess their common faith. What we say together as the body of Christ here on Sunday mornings is an affirmation of what has been affirmed by Christians everywhere for the last 2,000 years. And if they don't affirm this, then we can't really consider them Christians, can we? And these things, there are three components that Paul underscores. Number one, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was buried. Number two, he was buried. He really was dead. Dead, dead, dead in the tomb. And third, he rose again on the third day. The reality of his raised body was something that was undeniable for those countless hundreds of eyewitnesses who had seen him after his resurrection. So about this, the substitutionary atonement, the historicity of Jesus' humanity, he had a real human body that could die and did die, and that he rose on the third day. His resurrection was not just a spiritual raising, a spiritual resurrection, but a literal 
physical resurrection on a day that could be determined and remembered. This is the apostolic tradition. And regarding this kind of tradition, we know that it didn't just begin with Christians, but the Jewish rabbis had a certain uh, format for transmitting material even before it was written down. And for them, even the oral tradition was more reliable than what was written down because what was written down in that setting could be easily forged or it could be presented without reliable authenticity, without a stamp, an official stamp of approval. And so the rabbis used a kind of technical language to describe this oral transmitting of truth from one generation to another. Paul uses these same words here in our passage for today. The truth was delivered by an older generation, received by a younger generation, and then delivered again to the next generation. Those words, receive, deliver, are the backbone of this formula used in the rabbinic world for the passing on of traditions from one generation to another. So Paul and the rest of the apostles recognize that there are rumors floating around about who Jesus is and what he came to do, and they are concerned from the very beginning to guard and protect the truth with a capital T. This is true apostolic secession. This is what we really mean when we talk about the apostolic tradition. And if we believe in the authority as well as the historical reliability of the Bible, and we do, then we can trust here what Paul says, that the resurrection was not made up later on by Christians who were wishful thinkers, but it was a bodily reality. The risen Christ was seen by hundreds of eyewitnesses and the truth of what they saw has been safely and accurately passed down to countless generations. Secondly, Paul says that both Jesus' death for us and his resurrection were in accordance with the scriptures. Paul might have in mind here some specific passages like Isaiah 53 regarding substitutionary atonement. Jesus' death is for us and that language of for us that idea of Jesus dying in our place and taking upon himself the penalty for our sin the swap that we experience that um, inheritance of freedom and life righteousness and all of eternity that's his becomes ours now because of this substitute this swap, that he was our substitute. And Paul, when he says this, he likely has Isaiah 53 in the back of his mind, where Isaiah writes about the suffering servant. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Or Paul might be thinking regarding the resurrection on the third day about Jonah Chapter 1, verse 17, where we read that Jonah was in the belly of a big fish for three days and three nights. We know that Jesus himself refers back to that passage in Matthew chapter 12 when he is asked by the Pharisees for a sign, and he responds, no sign will be given but the sign of Jonah. Um, And he points in those three days and three, three nights to the reality of what would happen to him ahead of time. He knows already about the timeline of his own death and resurrection. So Paul might have these kinds of specific passages in mind, or he might just be considering, and this is likely as well, 
all of the witness of all of the Old Testament scriptures, which bear witness to the, um, through foreshadowing and through the promises um, that are in there, they point forward to what God would do in Jesus Christ. We hear in Luke's gospel also that Jesus recognizes this. Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, following his resurrection, opens the disciples' minds to understand the scriptures and all of what was written about him in the scriptures. And he said in Luke 24, Thus it is written that the Christ, or the Messiah, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. We know then that when these same disciples began preaching the gospel after Pentecost, they used countless Old Testament passages to shed light on the continuity of God's purpose in sending Jesus to die and rise again. So Jesus' atoning death and his resurrection on the third day are, in fact, in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures. And so finally, as if the witnesses of scripture and tradition were not enough, Paul now is going to point to the change in his own life. As he lists all of the different apostles and the eyewitnesses at the resurrection, Paul then uses an incredibly self-deprecating term to describe his own apostleship. The ESV translates this, that he was as one untimely born. But in the Greek, it is even more jarring in its abnormality. Paul likens himself to a miscarriage, even to an aborted child. He specifically is saying he uh, is the least of all of the apostles in his coming to apostleship, his coming to faith and conversion, and his first witness of the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus was not the way it ought to have been. He is the least of all. He calls himself the chief of sinners, specifically because he persecuted the church before he came to faith in Christ. His sin was not so much the sin of rampant morality, but the sin of the older brother and the parable of the prodigal son. He, in his self-righteousness, was blind in disbelief to what God had done in Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Paul was self-righteous in his zeal for the law, and now he is self-deprecating in his zeal for the grace of Jesus Christ. Only God could do that. Only God could miraculously break into his own creation and reverse the law of sin and death. Only God could bring about a 180-degree change in someone like Paul or someone like me or someone like you. Paul was loved and forgiven much, and he loved much through the way he worked to bring the gospel to those who hadn't yet heard it. Paul boasts in his weakness to highlight God's strength. He doesn't take credit for the gospel work that he does. Instead, he even says that grace is the subject of the sentence. Grace itself does the work. Paul is not active, though he works tirelessly. Paul is a passive vessel of God's kingdom work in the world because God works through him by his grace. So again, Paul has set out to argue for the reliability of the resurrection, its historic, objective truth, through its 
dependence upon the hundreds of eyewitness, eyewitnesses and its verbal affirmation as passed down from those same eyewitnesses reliably, its support throughout the Old Testament scriptures, and its powerful effect in the lives of believers. Paul then, surrounding this threefold argument, has something to say about what this means for us. The doctrine actually has meaning for us, and he's going to talk about that, and he talks about that almost in a sandwiched way around the creedal part of the passage. He is saying to the Corinthians, hold fast to what to the word of the gospel that has been preached to you. Paul writes that the Corinthians had received the gospel in the past. There's a past component to our salvation, and they currently stand in the gospel at this very moment, just like we do. And they are being saved and will be saved at the last day from the very presence of sin itself, provided that they hold fast to the word What is the word? What is this word? This is important for us to know. This is the personal part of this passage. The word is not just this doctrinal affirmation of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, but the word has an effect on our lives. This is the word of grace. This is the word of the gospel, the gospel of God's forgiving love for us in Jesus. This is the word of God spoken, saying, I forgive you. This is the word of the just judge at judgment day saying his verdict because of Jesus Christ, not guilty. This is the word, the freeing word of the gospel of grace that jumps off the pages of scripture, off the pages of the word, the Bible. And we read the Bible regularly because it aligns, realigns our perspective with God's perspective. It places the story of our lives and the scripts in our head against the framework of the truth of God's love and mercy. And this word, the biblical word, the word right here points to the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. The freeing word of the gospel of grace comes through the incarnate word, God made flesh. God has broken into his fallen creation in order to bring about its restoration. We believe that Jesus, the word, was made flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Through this word, Jesus Christ, God breaks through, God speaks the word of grace over us. And God um, not only takes care of our sin, forgives us and frees us, but he also defeats the devil. This is what we hear in Martin Luther's wonderful, um, wonderful mighty fortress hymn, one little word shall fell him. One little word, that word Jesus Christ, that word it is finished, that word you are forgiven. Finally, this freeing word of the gospel of grace springs forth from the lips of believers through the power of the Holy Spirit. I hope that you have experienced this. I hope you've experienced this in this place. I know you have because you keep coming back. I hope you've experienced it elsewhere. Um, I hope you have a friend who speaks the word of the gospel over you because this word of the gospel is not something that we can say to ourselves. It's not something that... um, People mean when they say, give yourself a little grace. Oh, just forgive yourself. Go easy on yourself. Let it go. That's not the same thing. That is something only that we can do within our closed system, and it doesn't actually free us. That, oh, just let it go. Oh, just there, there, it'll be okay. It doesn't do it. We need a word of truth that cuts through the crap 
and goes right to our heart and frees us from our own cycle of sin and death. I hope you have a friend like this who can talk you off a ledge. I hope you have a friend like this who can speak words of sanity that cut through your anxiety. I hope you have a a friend like this who can tell you the truth in such a way that sets you free. I was trying to think of examples of this in my life, and there are so many countless examples, but a couple of examples stand out to me specifically because it was other ministers that spoke this word of the gospel over me. Again, we're no good in this pulpit if we're not actually doing this. Um, You should hear it from your Christian friends, but you should also hear it right from this place. And I remember um, off, off the record out of the pulpit once when um, several, several years ago, obviously before I met Scott when I was dating and I was in a very uh, unhappy dating relationship, one of those ones full of drama, and I encountered Paul Zoll at a party um, the way you do, and I know you all know this, you see him and he suddenly is there just for you and he gives you all of his attention and he just said, well, Deborah, how are you? And I knew he meant it. So I actually told him, and I said, I don't know, there's this weird situation. This guy thinks that I'm smothering him, but I don't feel like I'm smothering him, and there's all this drama. And Paul Zell just said, well, no, that's not true, Deborah. Deborah, you're not like that. You're not a smotherer. Your mother's not a smotherer. And he used some good Freudian psychology. Also, he knows my mother personally, so he can say that. He said, your mother's not a smotherer. You're not a smotherer. That's not what's going on. And he was so right. And everything else just fell away, and I was free from all of that junk just because he had spoken the truth straight to me. Um, Another situation that was so freeing for me was um, more recently, in the last couple of years, I I get the opportunity as a woman in this pulpit to get to preach on some of the women's passages in Scripture. And I had the opportunity to preach on Proverbs 31, which... I was excited about, and then as I got going, I was like, well, I don't know where I'm going with this because I've done all the studying and all the exegesis, and I did one of those things where I got up in Sunrise Sinners, and I told them everything, but nothing made any sense, and there was no through line for me. I didn't know yet by Thursday where the Lord would have me go for Sunday, and our own Dean Pearson was so wonderful. He just cut through all the stuff, and he just said, well, Proverbs 31 is the law, of course. I was like, well, yeah. Of course, of course it is. Proverbs 31 is this beautiful depiction, this beautiful biblical ideal of womanhood. But I'm a woman, and I couldn't see past that. I could only see the beautiful ideal and my own failure to keep the ideal. And so him just identifying it as the law freed me to be able to preach the gospel from that passage, not only to myself, but to you all. So again, it doesn't have to be a minister saying it. it better, we better be saying it or we're no good. But it doesn't have to be just us. You could hear this freeing word from a friend, from a therapist, a Bible study, a song, a poem. Uh, you get the idea. There is a um, wonderful play that I got to experience in college that I got to work on in college called Smoke on the Mountain. And this was before I lived in the South, so I didn't really understand. But it's set in North Carolina, and it has this traveling band, family band of gospel singers coming through this little country church. And the songs in that musical really stuck in my brain. 20 years ago, they stuck in my brain, and I still sing them sometimes, believe it or not. I've never heard them anywhere else, but I still sing them. And there's one song called The Filling Station. This is a comedy, so of course The Filling Station is a little bit interesting. It's talking about the place where we hear the gospel. And the the chorus goes, and filling station, I didn't know then, I figured it out as a gas station. But you know that. 
bring them into the spout where the glory pours out. It'll make them cry. It'll make them shout. Everything's free. It'll never run out at the filling station. The gospel is free. It will never run out. We return to the place. That's what it means to hold fast to the word, to return to the places where we've heard that gospel. So I haven't said it yet to you. Let me say it this morning. Let me try my hand at it this morning. You, you right there, all of you sitting in the pews individually, and all of you listening in on the radio or online, wherever you are, God sees you. And that's a scary thing, because he sees everything about you, all of the things. He sees the good, the bad, and the ugly. He knows what you've done, and he knows what's been done to you. And yet God still says, I forgive you. I love you. You are mine, and I want to be with you for all eternity. And so for that, we can say, thanks be to God. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.